0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast and the New Books and African American Studies channel on that podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Christopher Stewart-Taylor. He is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Waterloo and Associate Vice President for Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Anti-Racism at the University of Waterloo. We're here today to discuss his new book, Flying Fish in the Great White North, The Autonomous Migration of Black Barbadians. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your availability.
1: All right, thank you very much. It's uh, a pleasure when people reach out and enjoy the book. Um, as we mentioned, it's a lot of work that goes into this and not just you know the hours like you're saying in you know, libraries and archives and whatnot, but particularly for this book was a lot of myself and my family story. So I appreciate this opportunity to talk about it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Um, Where did you grow up? Can you share anything about your early life experiences? What events in your earlier life catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult?
1: Well, first off, I never predicted, if you asked my 10-year-old self, if Mm -hmm. A, I'd
0: be a professor,
1: B, I would write a book. That was never Mm. on the radar, but through the book, it was really giving me an opportunity to write a chapter in my family's story, not just history, but my family's story. So for context, I am a second generation Barbadian Canadian. So my parents were born in Barbados. And the book talks about how my father was a part of that Windrush generation, migrated to the UK, London, Brixton, to be exact, a part of that movement, particularly around London transport from England, eventually moved to Canada. My mother was a teacher in Barbados, migrated to Canada in the 1960s. And that's really important because that's what shaped my or continues to shape who I am as a person. I never really saw myself as, quote, unquote, a black person, but more so as someone who lives in a Barbadian or a Bajan household in Canada. That's a very important distinction because my point of reference to black leaders or people in positions of power has always been rooted not through an african-american centric idea for example when we're talking about let's say in 2008 you know with the election of barack obama folks are talking about yes of one of the first or the first black leaders but myself was always like well we had places like barbados like Errol Barrow from 1966 who was prime minister so from my understanding of blackness has never been you know, rooted in the space of north america per se but really coming out of what Barbados was and continues to be and that shaped everything about me I mean when we talk about in my book I talk about the culture of education education has always been something that not just is important but has been I'll I'll openly say has been forced upon me like you go to school and you get educated because if you look at my mother and my father education has been that tool for social mobility mind you my father never had the opportunity to finish school as a child, couldn't afford it. But once he had that opportunity in the UK and in Canada, you start pushing forward and seeing how education, formal education can get you somewhere higher than you've been previously. And so that has always been my mentality, whether it is in kindergarten to grade 12 or in undergrad, eventually doing my masters and my PhD, that push that I really saw my parents go through has really defined who I am as a person.
0: What inspired you to write this book?
1: What do you hope readers will gain from it? Interestingly enough, when I was doing my PhD work, I had a completely different topic. I was going to learn more about myself. So second generation Black identity. So people born, particularly in Canada. And then my father actually died suddenly, right in the middle of my PhD, boom died suddenly and not only did it completely shift the topic of my dissertation and which eventually became the book but it completely shifted and I'll say it my outlook on life before I was completely driven like hey you know what get the PhD you know go to law school make a pile of money live in a condo downtown all that fun stuff that you think about when you're in your early 20s and then it completely shifted to me thinking that When people die, that's it. Like you, I don't think a lot of young people understand. When someone dies, their story is gone. Yes, you might have memories of it, but if no one continues to tell that story, they are just the memory to you. That's it. And so the book actually became not just me telling his story, because I actually told my father, you know, because he was he was there, and I told him, you know, he retired. I said, hey. No, start writing your memoirs I just said it like just start writing down your story whatever you remember I had no idea he was doing it but after he died as you know going through people's stuff you find things and he began to write it and so it wasn't just me telling his story and my mother's story and others like my mother and my father it became a form of catharsis like I'll be honest with you black men in particular black West Indian men in particular we don't talk about feelings. <laughs> we, we don't talk about how loss and grief impacts our day to day. It's something that we just bottle up, go to work, go to school and deal with it. So the book became an opportunity for me to feel, to grieve, to unpack, Someone's story that was very intimate to him and very intimate to me, but gave me an opportunity for the world to see So that was really the push for it. And honestly If no one read it, I've been fine with that Because the book was really for me and for my family.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell?
1: Mainly it's a story about immigration And emigration So I and E Mm-hmm really it's the emigration push factors of why people left barbados i always would laugh when you know you're around in north america particularly in a cold climate and you tell people where you're from and they'd be like so why did you leave it's such a great place and you're like um it's not that simple <laughs> you know what i mean it's not that simple that people just want to stay in these particular places So, it's really talking about a really when it's coming out from the period of enslavement, you know, overpopulation in Barbados, social mobility. You needed to go somewhere. Barbados is 166 square miles. I mean, 166 square miles is like a university campus, it's tiny. And Barbados was and continues to be one of the most densely populated countries in the world. So, people need to go somewhere. Particularly when you have a highly educated, you have a highly social mobile population, they need to go somewhere. So one particular theme was why people left. And around that, too, was how the government, first the colonial government, so it was the colonial government until 1966, how the colonial government facilitated people's migration within the Caribbean Basin. I touch on the Panama Canal. We talk about the U.K., Migration to the US, and eventually migration to Canada, where my parents' story is rooted in. But on top of that, it was also a conversation of pushing back against this ideology that black people, quote unquote, don't like school or, quote unquote, aren't good at school. It's a narrative that we hear all over in the States and in Canada that, well, black people just should shut up and dribble. And I was like, hold on a second. These are countries who, in Barbados in particular, has one of the highest literacy rates in the world, full stop. That in the late 50s, early 60s, around the time of independence, education was the highest expenditure of government funds. Education became what I call a culture of education, a cultural birthright. Yes. You know, fast forward to now when we start problematizing education, colonial education and whatnot. Yes. And we talk about edutocracies and we see now with Prime Minister Mia Motley, you know, having this push for education does have some of its pitfalls. But you have an entire population that had access to free education, who took that access to free education and came to these countries to make them, quote unquote, better. So that was a big push for me to challenge these particular narratives of the negativity or the dislike or the lack of interest in education. I tell students all the time, particularly young black boys, I say, look, if a teacher looks at you or doesn't look at you in a classroom and says, oh, you're not good enough. I say, Well, I'm from Barbados.
0: I'm from the Caribbean. literacy rate. I'm good. Mm -hmm. Why did you select the title Flying Fish in the Great White North? What does it mean? Well, full disclosure, I never forget uh,
1: (laughs) my PhD supervisor. Shout out to Stephanie Bangarth. (laughs) She was like, when you're picking a title for your dissertation and for your book, make sure when somebody's walking through a library or a bookstore, it's something catchy. i never forget that. And I like to to have these play on words, but most importantly, flying fish is part of the national dish in Barbados. So if anybody's never seen a flying fish before, for the record, they don't fly. (laughs) I got to qualify that. But if you're ever in a boat, you know, on the West Coast, and then you see these fish gliding out of the ocean and a fantastic dish, flying fish and cuckoo. Cuckoo and flying fish tastes great. Cuckoo is like cornmeal, you know, almost like a mashed potato cornmeal and you have flying fish, Right. Steamed fish, fried fish, baked fish is fantastic. So flying fish is representative of Barbados and the Bajans, right? And then we have the Great White North, which is the representation of Canada, the Great White North. So it's on this this conversation of this migration, these flying fish, these Barbadians, these Bajans in the Great White North. And on top of that, when we talk about the autonomous migration of Black Barbadians, it's Challenging this idea that people, particularly black people, just migrate just because because of these pull factors from the Metropole, from Canada, the U.S., the U.K. But these were individuals that had made conscious decisions for themselves, for their families, for future generations of why they came to this country, Canada, U.S., and U.K.
0: Can you tell us about Errol Barrow, the first prime minister of Barbados? Yes.
1: I mean, this is important. I'm I'm glad we we can have conversations of people cuz hey people don't don't even know this name and particularly Canadians don't understand that you know someone like Errol Barrow used to rub shoulders with as I call, Trudeau the father. So, you know, we have Trudeau now, but the father, Pierre, right? That was his contemporary. So we have Errol Barrow who was the first of all, the premier of Barbados and led Barbados into independence in 1966, which is also important because when you talk about Errol Barrow, you have to mention other names. You have to mention you know, the Democratic Labor Party, which he's a part of. You need to mention the Barbados Labor Party. If you mention the Barbados Labor Party, which really began in 1930s, 1937, you have to mention a very important individual, one of Barbados national heroes, Clement Payne. So if you're looking at this period of time Let's say between the First World War, Second World War, up to 1966, this was the rise of what I would call the Black Barbadian democracy, where because of the recession, you know, global recession, because of labor movement movements globally, you had these populations pushing forward for better and more representation, really tied to labor unrest. So you have... The Barbados Labor Party, right, which Barrow, Sir Errol Barrow, was a part of. But then as things happen, there's a bit of discord. And then the DLP, Democratic Labor Party, comes to be, which is really a party as what some folks mention, the party of the people, the working class, quote unquote. And he rose to prominence in this space, eventually leading Barbados, to independence in 1966. So, Arabel is one of our national heroes.
0: What were his relations like with Canada as Prime
1: Minister? I would say diplomatic, because we need to understand that Barbadians in particular, and not unique to Barbados, but Barbadians in particular, because I'm going to talk about the book, truly understood their place in space in the global. I'll say it, the global colonial space. So in particular, Errol Barrow, if you look at his speeches and look at his work, and I talk a little bit about in my book, he himself understood that Canada had a racist immigration policy up until 1962. And he knew that Barbados had a quote-unquote surplus population that needed to migrate. So he himself would come to Canada and push and challenge racist immigration policy. Say, look, we know what's up. We know what's going on. We have a highly educated population, particularly of black women, who deserve and who could help and who could support this country to move forward and one of those angles that they really took, and not just you know Barrow but others in Barbados really had the push for the domestic scheme in nineteen fifty five really understanding that with this domestic scheme, where you know in the first Iteration as you want to call it and they had other other forms prior to 1955, but really want to the starting point Where a hundred black women Jamaica Trinidad from Jamaica Trinidad and Barbados had the opportunity to come here or to Canada as Domestic servants or what we call living caregivers or nannies, whatever term we want to use today and governments like Barrow used to come and say look we know This is de skilling who you are. We understand that. We know you're highly educated. We know you're professionals. We know you're teachers. We know you went to school, post secondary education. We understand that. But we also understand that these governments, like Canada, will not allow you to come based on your quote unquote merit. But they also knew who these women were. And folks like Barrow would say look, you need to come and be ambassadors for Barbados. Because if you are an ambassador, hence why I get the term emigrant ambassador, if you become an ambassador, it's going to show these host countries, these metropoles, that others like you should and can and will contribute to Canadian UK, US society. So Arrow Barrel, I always want to come back to this and say we have this thinking that people from the Caribbean, people from developing quote-unquote countries are not as politically astute, do not understand democracy, do not understand politics. We need to understand that someone like Barrow grew up in a country that had a par- one of the oldest parliaments in the Western Hemisphere. We're coming back to the 17th century. We're coming back to understand that these are people who grew up in these spaces. Folks like Errol Bear was educated at Oxford in the UK. As I said, they rub shoulders with Trudeau's, the elites spoke the language, understood were educated in these spaces. So they knew how the system worked and they knew how to agitate against the system and to support their
0: people. What were the consequences for the Caribbean of the Seven Years War?
1: I guess you can say it depends how you define consequences, right? I mean, So with Seven Years War, we're looking at what, 1763, right? And interestingly enough, we we say consequences, but some people might say- I liked
0: what you said. Depends how you define consequences.
1: Yeah. So, So for example, right? If I'll say on the, if you were an enslaved person, right, if you're an enslaved black person, a consequence, or maybe not the consequence, a consequence of the Seven Years War was that places like France, (laughs) <laughs> really, were consolidating their power in that space. If you're a Quebecois, a francophone Canadian in Quebec, the consequence of the Seven Years' War was English, British domination. Because one thing, and I tell when, I'm, when I when I ever have an opportunity to you know be in a classroom and teach, I, we talk about the Seven Years' War, we talk about the Quebec Act of 1774, and I say, hey, imagine. Two, three hundred years ago. So when we talk about consequences, I was like, imagine two, three hundred years ago. You're in a war. You know, people fighting, da 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 Because we got to understand, seven years of war happened in North America, also happened in the UK, in Europe. It's going all over. Global world war, quote-unquote. And I say, imagine you lose. So you're the French and you lose. And you're at the negotiation table and Britain's like, yeah, you know what we want? We want Guadeloupe. We want... a Guadeloupe is like the same size of Barbados. I don't know any listeners here have been in Guadeloupe. Beautiful island, French Caribbean, gorgeous. You're like we want Guadeloupe, and France is like, ooh, nah. You can have Canada. <laughs> Literally, like you could just have Canada because at the time we need to understand, you know, seventeenth, eighteenth century, because of enslavement, because of sugar. Places like Guadeloupe, Haiti, Barbados, Jamaica were arguably some of the richest colonies in the world. They're arguably priceless. So the consequence on two sides is the reverberations that we feel today in places like Canada and Quebec with the Quebec Act of 1774. You know, you have this English domination. Now England and Britain are taking over Quebec, Canada. And the Caribbean side, it's the consequences, hey, we're here for slavery, period. We're here for sugar and we're gonna do everything in our power to keep ah. our hands on these colonies to ensure that we continue to make money. And it's important for folks to understand how Barbados plays into this as well because during the 17th century, Barbados was, if not one of the richest, the richest colonies, period, because of sugar. And that's in the 1600s. And so we need to understand that, you know, we see these islands and you go on vacation, you know, all inclusive and do all that fun stuff. But during this period of time, this colonization period, this period of enslavement until 1834, these places were literally factories of death. You know, life expectancy is like 18 to 21 years old, period, all for sugar,
0: which was a luxury, period. Can you tell us about Nancy Grigg? What was her role in the Busa Rebellion? This is important too.
1: And I mean, when we talk about history and, and black women's history and, and slave result, revolts or rebellions. And if you ever ever have opportunity, so this is my shameless plug for people to visit Barbados. Shameless plug. If you ever go to Barbados and you're coming down almost not really the middle of the island, but one of the the busy intersections of the island just a you know bit north of town, Bridgetown, you're going to see a statue of Bussa. So B-U-S-S-A. And the Bussa Rebellion was arguably one of the most important rebellions, revolts in Barbadian and, I argue, Caribbean history. So that was 1860. 1816, sorry. The Easter Rebellion. And this was a revolt where there were rumors, because I, <laughs> I think a lot of youth nowadays forget that there was a time when we didn't have internet there's a time when we didn't have phones there's a time when information only got passed by ship and it took months and sometimes years for information to pass from one place to the next so we have in 1807 we have the end of the slave trade so the slave trade was abolished so no longer could European countries take and what a a colleague friend of mine called Anthony Morgan calls Displanted so displaced and planted people in the Americas so displaced and planted Displanted from Anthony Morgan No longer could you take people but you could maintain the populations that you have on your Plantations you could do that So after 1807 there's these rumors of wait a minute you ended the slave Trade, but I thought that meant you're ending slavery, so enslavement, but that wasn't the case. So, you have people like Bussa and Nanny Griggs, in particular, coming back to Nanny Griggs, who organized these slave rebellions to fight for their freedom. It's important for us to understand that this was a black woman who fought for the freedom of others. We always have this narrative that, you know, particularly when you look at the states, you know, Denmark Vesey. Nat Turner, those folks, there's always men who push forward. But we need to understand that someone like Nanny Grigg organized, supported
0: the buses, the freedom fighters for freedom. What were Prime Minister William Lyne Mackenzie King's attitudes regarding color and complexion? How did this how did these attitudes impact his immigration policies? I know
1: when we throw around the word racist, people get their backs up right but he was a racist uh there's no other way to cut it you can go for example look so he's one of the longest serving prime ministers in in canada he's around the war second world war period you can go in online look at his diaries and he openly states that this is a white man's country period and he deserves the right, or reserves the right, sorry, to exclude anyone based on race and color, period. This is not me, you know, applying a revisionist lens of Canadian history or, you know, the dog whistle politics of critical race theory and know, Me twisting history and the truth I'm just stating historical facts And what's important for us to understand About his stance Again, you could say He said openly This is a white man's country And he deserves the right Or again, reserves the right And deserves, I could say (laughs) To exclude whomever he wants Based on race But it's important for us to understand He was representative Of Canadian society at that time And the book is rooted in these immigration push factors and immigration pull factors. And the book also is rooted in understanding Canadian immigration policy since Confederation, so since 1867. And we need to understand that if you look at Canadian immigration policies, immigration acts, particularly from 1906, so 1906, 1910, Canada openly <laughs> said, we can bar you From here based on your color or your race Particularly in 1910 When we get something called climate discrimination Because it's interesting I was speaking to a colleague And we always have this understanding that Canadians are polite It's like Canadian politeness We look at, you know, Canadians are polite And everything we do is polite And you know, those Americans are rude Blah, 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 blah okay fine cool whatever but then they're like maybe it's not canadians being polite but it's canadian passive aggressiveness that the politeness is just us being passive aggressive i thought about it for a second i thought about it in the sense of these immigration acts and our policies that we did not want i'm saying we because i'm in canada so canada didn't want black people to come here but they didn't want to openly state it so they said you know what it's too cold you can go to the archives right now my book pulls some pieces of this as well that you had immigration officials denying immigration applications stating to people yeah you know what um your race your skin color is best suited for the tropics so climate discrimination was one way to exclude black folk and on top of that you get 1911 you get laureate Wilford Laurier, which is there's a university right across the street <laughs> called Laurier from the University of Waterloo. That was pushing forward the only order and council to explicitly exclude black people. Explicitly say we do not and you can go online, you can see this. Black people will not be allowed to come here. Mind you it wasn't passed, but it didn't matter. So it's important to say because all of this is in context of Mackenzie King. Up until 1962 with the official deracialization of Canadian immigration policy it was also important that we take this out of just the white black binary That during this period while well, coming back to the 1880s, Canada had the Chinese head tax We didn't want Chinese folks here. You had the Komagata Maru Maru 1914 we didn't want Sikhs. So the ship off the coast of BC did not allow Sikhs to come here and they caught the continuous journey act that in order to come to this country you had to take a boat directly from your point of origin again this passive aggressiveness canada openly knowing that there is no ship coming from the indian subcontinent directly to canada you had to stop somewhere so you couldn't allow people to come in here period And so this is important for us to understand all this is happening on top of all, all of all this we need to understand that in the late 19th century and then early 20th century you have the creation of the rcmp the northwest mounted police that were specifically created to displace indigenous communities for european settlers and for white american settlers canada was openly trying to settle the west so the prairies alberta saskatchewan manitoba at this time so canada was like no 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 the police force. When we talk about policing, was created to exclude and displace and marginalize indigenous communities for European and white settlers. So we need to think about all this to say, yeah, Mackenzie King was a quote unquote racist, but he was reflective of what was happening in Canada at this time. On top of all of that, this is where we get the push and the proliferation, I should say, of residential schools of indigenous kids and this is a period that mackenzie king is stating it's not just we don't want black people we want this to be a white man's country because we also need to understand that women (laughs) weren't well white women i should say weren't legally and constitutionally seen as people until the early 20th century so all of these pieces are coming together to say hey mackenzie king could have been anti-black but he was just pro-white nationalist full stop So that's exactly it. We're talking about 1906 1910. This is a period that these folks were in power right that this country is for and only for white people But here's the interesting thing about this though Because if you look at the immigration acts that they were pushing out in 1906 and 1910 it wasn't just about race These immigration acts were ableist that if someone had a disability you had the ability to bar them it was rooted in eugenics that there's a certain type of Canadian that should be here it was rooted in and you can you could say when we talk about now in the 21st century about temporary foreign labor and temporary foreign workers it was yeah we don't like these quote unquote non white folks to be here but we need their labor So if you look at the Chinese head tax, and there's different iterations of it throughout the years, they specifically didn't want Chinese women to come here. The argument being, if Chinese women come here with Chinese men, they're going to settle here, they're going to have babies here, da-da-da-da-da-da, here's the story. So for them, when you look at Harris, when you look at Kendrick King, when you look at all these folks, they're all a part of the same For lack of a better term Ideology that Canada Is specifically here For White men and again it's also Important I gotta say this It's also important That these Pushes for lack of a better term Were not isolated to Canada If anybody has an opportunity To watch the movie Gallipoli Gallipoli you may have watched it in school, you checked out Gallipoli, you know, Australia's involvement in the First World War. You watch it, you're like, okay, cool. There's a particular actor in it now. I'm not going to say the name, but before that person was famous, blah, blah, blah. And then you start really learning about Australia and Canada during this time. And one of the war pushes, the national pushes for Australians, so white Australians, very important european australians was to give birth to white men because they knew and this is this is important to understand the war effort for australian women wasn't to go and fight in trenches and get mowed down by machine guns it was to have more australian man babies and i say this because It all fits into this British English British Commonwealth sensibility that the settler colonial states Canada Australia the purpose for people there was to populate the country with whiteness and displace indigenous populations, however, understanding that you need to bring in non white populations to build and grow and support the elite of what is whiteness. So it's very important to have those two comparisons
0: moving forward there. What contribution does your book make to Black Canadian history? I'm
1: not going to say it's a chapter
0: in Black
1: Canadian history. I want to say it's a footnote. I want to say that this is one story of many stories that have yet to be uncovered or researched because the big thing for me with my book is shifting and jim walker one of the preeminent scholars in black canadian history talked about the five allegories of the creation of and the writing of black canadian history talk about black victims Black objects black survivors so on and so forth and i wanted to to shift this narrative that black stories always have to be defined by negativity of oh, triumph over pain over discrimination over racism you know you had to be 110% and twice as good to to be better than i wanted to move away from this idea that there were just a handful of black people that made change i want to move away from and i'm not disparaging folks like no violet desmond tubman yes tubman her identities nationalities blur that line of canadian american i want to to create more stories of quote unquote ordinary People who made contributions in classrooms, on buses, in stores, in homes. That made these contributions to make Canada what it is today. And I tell folks all the time that we need to move away from this understanding that blackness is just this thing. A thing, and Dr. King Jr. called it thingification. (laughs) The thingification, I don't even know it's a real word But Dr. King said that The thingification of black people That were these objects, these things And I want to infuse and ignite and create a platform of regular folks Who made real contributions to who we are Because my book, you know, I talk about my mother and my father But I also highlight quite a few other quote-unquote ordinary Barbadian canadians educators that people have no idea who these names are, but who made fundamental changes to who we are As canadians and canadian society. So for me, I again I see this as a footnote that people that you know would read it and say hey, I want to do more on this I want to learn more about this. I want to amplify. i now I want to tell my Parents or grandparents story or I want to write down my own story because we think well, you know, Now, the focus uh, since May 25th, 2020, that everyone's talking about blackness and everyone's talking about race. But it's not true. It's not true. We are far from reaching a point that our stories are equitably
0: represented. Can you tell us about Cyriline Taylor? What is notable about her? Can you describe her significance? Yeah,
1: well, long story short, Cyriline Taylor is my mother. (laughs) Cyriline Taylor is my mother. And Again, coming back to what I said earlier, that when people die, their stories die with them. And after my father died, I pushed my mother to start writing her memoirs, start writing and telling her story. Because she has a lot of stories, right? One thing you talk to anybody, you know, older generations or elders, they will talk for days and days and days. And some of the stories might seem boring to you and for younger people, but once you start connecting dots, you think to yourself, how did you do this? So for example, again, context for for younger people listening to this, there was no internet, right? There was no cell phone, none of that. And my mother grew up in a place called, was born in a place called Ellington St. George. So St. George was, and is to this day, basically the breadbasket of Barbados. Fertile, many plantations, and so on and so forth. And grew up in what we'd call abject poverty. No running water, no electricity, none of that. And to hear her tell her story of where she came from and having that opportunity to go to school for free because the government as i mentioned before the government pushed free elementary secondary and then tertiary so post-secondary education for barbadian citizens to see how her opportunity to excel in the classroom took her from one place in ellerton saint george to toronto canada as a principal in an elementary school here. It's critically important for us to understand That you didn't have to be arrow barrel. You didn't have to be nanny Griggs You did not have to be Tubman. You didn't have to be Desmond You did not have to be all these famous names we hear about but they're regular quote-unquote people who made these contributions and for me speaking about my mother it's that I have the opportunity to Appreciate what she had to do to get where she is and for me it puts into context of where i am and what i have and how far i can go and it also puts into context courage (laughs) i mean my mother was a young woman who left barbados never left the country before got on a plane saw basically saw a newspaper ad (laughs) said we need teachers in canada cool awesome got on a plane as a young woman, flew to Montreal, didn't know anybody, got a ride from someone from Montreal to Toronto on the weekend and started teaching on the Monday. (laughs) You think about that for a second and say, wow, could I do that? And the answer is no. And so for me, it's very important to to, document these stories that others can begin to learn. And most importantly, others can begin to A, tell their own stories. And challenge their family members to tell their stories as well.
0: Who is Austin Clark? Can you describe his ideas and share some perspectives from his writings? Why is he noteworthy?
1: Growing Up Stupid Under the Union Jack, one of his big time books, or The Polished Ho. So, Austin Clark was, and is, I should say, passed away recently, was one of Barbados, now say one of Canada's preeminent. Writers, poets. And I mentioned Growing Up Stupid Under the Union Jack because the thing I like about it is his book. Because I used it and I pulled it out in, in my book. And Growing Up Stupid Under the Union Jack, you could argue, is a kind of a memoir, you know, of youth growing up in Barbados. And it was a critique of the education system. It was, okay, so we're. Going to school under this british system they're teaching us everything about britain kings and queens and snow and all that fun stuff we have to do the 11 plus so an exam that you take at 11 years old to determine what school you're going to go to if you can become a civil servant and if we learn about france finna you know becoming a civil servant during you know this colonial or post-colonial or neo-colonial period was the pinnacle of colonial subjects to be a bureaucrat. And he was like, what, what am I learning for? <laughs> what is the point of doing this? And we could talk about his work again, The Polish Hole. We could talk about his other scholarly works, you know, his writings and what he did in Canada. But for me in this particular space was his interrogation of the education system in Barbados and how that created I'm stealing a term from Finau, black skin, white masks. So it's an interesting comparison between my reverence for education and the British colonial education system. But at the same time, you have someone like Austin Clark saying, for what? what why? What purpose? I literally grew up stupid under the Union Jack.
0: Can you comment on parallels between Barbadian Canadian experiences and those of Grenadian Canadians, Trinidadian Canadians, and other communities of Caribbean Canadians? For example, what were the similarities and difference between the experience of Jamaican Canadians vis-a-vis those of Barbadian Canadians?
1: All right, how much time do we have? (laughs) No, I mean, that's a very, it's a a complex question. So I'm going to go very high level, right? And then root it down. So one of the issues that we have it's from the outside looking in. So I'll say from a North American perspective or a European perspective that first of all, everyone in the Caribbean is the same. If you're black, you're from the Caribbean. You have very not just similar but the same experiences. And for me, I always say, look, I'm not even a Caribbean historian. I'm a historian of English speaking. Caribbean or the West Indies. So British or former British colonies. Because if you look at the Caribbean, Cuba, Aruba, Grenada, fundamentally different stories, fundamentally different histories, fundamentally different people, languages. And the thing that that's unique about, let's say, Barbados, Barbados is the only country in the Caribbean that had one single colonizer from first contact. To independence that was a British Jamaica was a Spanish colony it's in the 17th century places like Grenada Trinidad change hands different populations different topographies for example if anybody has an opportunity to go to Jamaica Jamaica is a gorgeous island massive mountains fresh water rivers Barbados has none of that Places like St. Vincent volcanoes so I bring this to say is that yes They all have these experiences of the transatlantic slave trade All of them They all have experience of a British colonial system But we can say the exact same thing about India Pakistan Ghana, Nigeria. No one says Ghana and Barbados are the exact same places No, and that's the exact same thing too when we're looking here in the Caribbean So but what's interesting though? When we talk about those experiences in Canada, it's that we also have to flow this conversation too from the West Indies Federation, which existed briefly, for lack of a better term, the late 1950s, early 1960s, where you had this push for independence. And the push was, well, okay, we have these island states, let's all come together. So the Big Islands, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Barbados, to a certain extent, were part of this federation But places like jamaica and trinidad were much more quote-unquote developed than some of these smaller islands and the push was or the pushback was Why is jamaican trinidad going to support these quote-unquote smaller islands? For what and so it's like oh that federation is not going to work. Let's branch out So there are these distinct so it's important. There are these distinct identities within the caribbean within the west indies however, when you come to canada everybody becomes what black (laughs) so no one cares about your experience in Grenada or you know in Jamaica or in Trinidad or Antigua no one cares about those experiences all they see is your skin tone they think your accents the exact same and so there had to be a a, basically a mental shift when you come here to not understand your your island identity or your national identity which how people are defined as because Across the Caribbean, everyone's well. Most people are black, so your blackness didn't mean much. Which, again, we can problematize pigmentocracy and colorism and all that for days. But when you come here, people see you as black. And on top of that, since one of the big pushes and one of the first waves, really, when you're starting pushing into you know, the late, well, after 1967, the point system, the first wave or larger wave of black newcomers were from Jamaica. So then everybody fits and then now everybody has to fit under this Jamaican umbrella. If you're from the Caribbean, you're Jamaican. Doesn't matter if you're Barbados or from Grenada or from wherever else. It fits under that. So is this challenge of we have distinct identities, we have distinct histories, but the Canadian state was saying, well, you're all black. So whatever
0: can you describe the importance of the Negro Citizenship Committee and the Negro Citizenship Association during the period of time you examine in the book this is important
1: to to bring up Donald Moore so Don Moore so Don Moore was the headwind leaders of the NCC and the NCA and it was Don Moore who came from Barbados before they were looking at the 1910s before the deratialization of Canadian immigration policy. That he was one of those folks who were able to come here under what Canada called exceptional merit. So if you were exceptional, you could come to this country. came. He's an entrepreneur. But he also understood in the 1950s he pushed Parliament. He understood that he had the power and the resources to challenge canadian immigration officials canadian politicians through the ncc and the nca to open doors for more west indians so folks like gloria bayless domestic scheme we're talking about you know the overpopulation that push that folks like arrow barrel so sir arrow Barrow, former prime minister were pushing from the caribbean You have people on the other end like Donna Moore in the NCC and the NCA that were agitating Canadian government to allow these folks to come. So it was a he was a part of a I would argue if people want to frame their understandings of blackness and confronting anti-black racism in the 21st century through the prism of BLM and Black Lives Matter. He was BLM before there was even a conception of BLM. He was BLM before there was a, a. a real hard political push for independence in Caribbean states. He knew through the NCC and NCA, he understood the halls of power. He understood systems.
0: And through that, pushed for people like himself to come here. Can you comment on the nuances of xenophobia directed against Black, Caribbean, and West Indian immigrants? In what ways was it similar or different vis-a-vis Xenophobia directed towards Jewish immigrants.
1: Fantastic question, particularly now, um, what's going on in in the world. One big nuance we need to understand when it comes to anti-black racism was a lot of it was rooted in the fear and the objectification of the black body. One thing we don't talk about is that enslavement and colonization, I'm going to speak specifically over blackness right now, but I'd argue across indigenous populations, was rooted in the sexual oppression and sexual dominance of white men over non-white women. Because let's think about it for a second. We talk about sexual assault and rape as a tool of war, which it is, but it's also a tool of colonization. You'd have white men rape black girls and black women with impunity. You'd have even, say, for example, the Vatican. We talk about indigenous populations in South America, Latin America, saying, well, you know what? You're not really committing adultery because these women aren't real women. So you can have relationships with them and your wives back in spain (laughs) or the church the catholic church it's like your wife's back here is whatever it's not a big deal so we need to understand that connection there and on the flip side too we need to understand and you can look in the archives here as well that one of the fears and one of the arguments against the migration of black men in particular was rooted in the fact that black men will come here and rape white women and we see the rhetoric across north america at this time that we need to protect white womanhood white women's sanctity from the evil black man so when we talk about the nuances there yeah that's one big part of it the the threat of the black man aggressor sexual aggressor but also the sexualization and the objectification of black women's bodies so then it's very interesting then and these are all rooted in ideologies right all rooted in constructions. So we talk about the newest nuances of for example anti Semitism. And we need to understand too that during the mid twentieth century there was core relationships with Jewish communities and black communities. If anybody does any research on you know sit-ins in places like Dresden, Ontario, that was Jews, Jewish people, black people together working Together. And people don't understand that. If you look at, say, for example, when you talk about the period in places like Harlem, the only people that black people could rent places from were Jewish communities. They understood that we're all exiled and we need to come together, which is interesting when you fast forward to the 2020s, the rhetoric now around anti Semitism. And again, we talk about anti Semitism too, we need to really understand a lot of it is rooted in the Diocese lie. That Jewish people killed Christ so this is why we hate Jewish people whoa okay and so we start thinking too well the curse of ham in the Bible that the Bible says that because of what happened in that tent black people for forever be enslaved so these are the nuances and people and this unfortunate because in the age of 280 characters on Twitter we can't have these nuanced conversations to say hey a lot of what we're coming from and a lot of the conversation we're having is rooted in thousands of years of social constructions and ideologies that have become reified. And then we miss out this period again, particularly in the mid 20th century, the relationship between Jewish communities and black communities. And then we fast forward 70 years later and it's like, whoa, wait, what's going on? So that's the, the big nuanced part of it. And I think for me, at least, when we talk about anti-Black racism, we need to understand colonialism and colonization through the prism of sexual violence. Because colonization is violent, enslavement is violent, psychological, physical, and sexual violence. And that's key for us to understand.
0: You write the following on page three. I have coined both the terms emigrant ambassador and autonomous bahan which are at at the heart of flying fish in the great white north. The autonomous Bahan embodies the independent nature and agency of all Barbadian emigrants as they navigated the racialized and oppressive structures of the international migration system. The emigrant ambassador builds on the concept of the autonomous Bahan, but refers specifically to the black Barbadian and black West Indian women that spearheaded and challenged Canada's discriminatory immigration policy during the 1950s and 60s. Aided by the concepts of the autonomous Bahan and the emigrant ambassador, this book attempts to capture as accurately as possible the spirit of the nurses, the domestics, the teachers, the bus conductors, and all of the young Barbadian emigrants. They left the sunny tropical paradise of Barbados or the cold abyss of the unknown in search of a better life for themselves their unborn children and the island the terms need to be adopted to clearly identify and emphasize the role that the individual female immigrants in particular played in the history of international migration can you elaborate on the above can you uh, say more about what you mean in this passage I think the big
1: thing for me with that, when we talk talking about immigrant ambassadors and autonomous Bajans was my work initially in this space was a critique of two scholars work that rooted Caribbean migration as a culture of migration that people just migrated because it was a part of their culture. And it, took away the autonomy, since we got the autonomous Belgians here. It took away the autonomy of who they are. It literally took away the humanity of hundreds of thousands of individuals, which is just rooted in the fact that enslavement happened, you're used to being uprooted from the African continent. A part of your identity is just movement and being displanted. So this is what you do, you just move, you just move. And what I wanted to do again, with autonomous Bajans here was to give life and give story to individuals taking control over their lives and making deliberate decisions for themselves and for their families to move, to migrate, and to do everything in that space. And so for me, I wanted to tell that story starting with autonomous Bajans, which are men, women, children. But then really rooted in immigrant ambassadors again coming from donald moore saying in one of his writings you have to be an ambassador for who you are pushing from the works of arrow Barrow, trying to challenge these racist immigration policies and so i really wanted to come back to say it's look it was women west indian women caribbean women black women who made these changes. These are quote unquote regular women. These weren't politicians. These weren't activists. These were people who just wanted a better life for themselves and for their families. So this is very important for us to understand that yes, these are labels that I put on these people, but the label isn't important in itself It's about the action. It's about these individuals who took control, who dictated and navigated what I call the changing tides of the Atlantic to contribute not just to our historical
0: narratives, but to our society. What do you mean by the terms allophilia and allophilic? So when we look at allophilia, this is a term
1: from a Harvard professor, and It really comes when you're talking about, you know, (laughs) looking at summing up this conversation around racism, xenophobia and immigration policy and white man's country and so on and so forth. Is that because of our multiculturalism policy in Canada in 1971 and our Multiculturalism Act in 1988, we've really been taught this idea of tolerance. The other is fine. You can just tolerate them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to believe in them. You just need to tolerate them. And this scholar said, well, tolerance doesn't really get you that far, right? And he said, there needs to be something that moves beyond tolerance. So he created this concept called allophilia, basically saying there are five elements to move people and move society beyond tolerance, beyond the ideas of you can do your thing over there as long as it doesn't bother me, as long as I can't smell your food, I can't hear your music, great. And so create this concept, alophilia, which is defined by kinship, affection, comfort, engagement, and enthusiasm. So he was saying to move beyond tolerance, you need to have kinship. Are you actually friends and engaged with difference and different people? Are you affectionate? Do you care for difference? Comfort. Are you comfortable in different spaces? Can you go in a particular neighborhood and feel comfortable? If you go to a particular restaurant and feel comfortable and not feel out of place, and then are you engaged? Diwali was this week. Are you engaged? Do you understand what it was? Do you know what it is? Do you know what people are celebrating with the fireworks and the lights? Hanukkah. Do you, do you understand that Kwanzaa? Do you understand that Christmas? Do you understand that? So are you engaged, and then are you enthusiastic? Do you fundamentally feel show emotion? in a positive way for difference. And so that's what moves us beyond tolerance. And if you really look at my book, and I think for me in this book, is to tell these stories so that people can understand that black people, Barbadians, black women in particular, were people that supported, not just to deracialize immigration policy for black people, but that supported ushering in the point system, which allowed everybody to come here. Yes, there's problems with the point system, elite classism, <laughs> and so on and so forth, but it wasn't just, hey, we want more black people here. It was to allow everyone here. So that's very important for us to understand.
0: How did Barbadians in Canada perceive other Caribbean and West Im- Indian immigrants, such as from Trinidad, Grenada, Guyana, the Windward and Leeward Islands? and elsewhere we came family
1: if you look at a lot of the associations that came here they're understanding that you know a population like Barbados was tiny yes we do have Barbadian associations your Bajan associations here you know the Jamaican Association different island associations but a lot of folks did understand that we need to come together and be together to support each other to support our communities to support our children to allow all of us to grow So we need to push away those differences that we've had in the West Indies and the Caribbean from different islands and different schools and so on and so forth. That once we're here in this Canadian state, once our kids are in our classrooms, these teachers aren't seeing difference. They're seeing skin color. They're seeing darkness. They're seeing foreigner. They're seeing immigrant. They're seeing newcomer. And that mentality had to shift that we need to come together as a collective group to combat anti-Black racism.
0: What were the similarities and differences between Caribbean experiences in Canada and South Asian immigrants' experiences in Canada? What was similar or different in regard to Caribbean migrants' experiences in Canada and those of Oceanian migrants' experiences in New Zealand and Australia? What aspects of the story you tell about Barbadians in Canada are unique to Barbadians in Canada? What aspects of the story you tell can be fruitfully compared with um, their immigration experiences in the history of the British Empire and Commonwealth?
1: That's a good question. And I think the one of the key pieces is that if we're looking at these experiences, we need to shift the narrative to say, okay, well, what is the relationship within the quote-unquote commonwealth of these different looking people across the globe towards the metropole so towards the uk and one of the roots and where my research is now going into is the understanding of colonial education so no matter where you were within the commonwealth you were educated in the british system you were learning english you were not learning who you were you were learning that your indigenous community and your indigenous self wasn't as good as a metropole. And this is important and I mentioned before when we're talking about Australia. The settler colonialism that we see in Australia is similar, not analogous, but similar to the settler colonialism we see in South Africa, the settler colonialism we see in Kenya. The relationship between South Asians and black folk that we see, again, not the same, but similar to what we see in Uganda and Tanzania that we see in Guyana and Trinidad. And so I'm bringing these pieces up to say, yes, while these experiences aren't exactly the same, there are similarities. And if we can understand the similarities, then we can come together to confront and challenge racism and prejudice and xenophobia as a united unit. And not to say, hey, my experience is better than yours because I'm from Barbados and it's the only place that was colonized, you know, from beginning to end by one colonizer. It's not to say that, it's to say, look, If we're all trying to live in a society that is much more equitable, that we don't focus so much on race and difference, we need to start speaking to each other and saying, hey, I went to school here in Melbourne, Australia, and yeah, I was removed from my family, particularly when we look at, no, aboriginal peoples in Australia or indigenous peoples in Canada. We look at residential schools, very similar. We look at mission schools in somewhere like Nigeria, very similar. You're removing kids from their homes to learn British ways of customs and not learn about themselves. So if we start having that relationship and talking to each other, then we can look at lessons learned and best practices to move forward and confront the same issue, which is colonization and colonialism.
0: As you, as we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on now? What are you working on next? Can you share with us your present research?
1: Um, really now, it's really getting into work on, you know, colonial education, which I already started in the book. I talk about in the book, but when I wrote the, wrote the book and started the book, you know, your thinking changes. There's pieces in the book that, you know, even when I mentioned, you know, terms like female, we don't use that language anymore to women. When we talk about, you know, man dominated. So really understand the nuance and the intersectionalities of people. It's very important. And for me, my work now is now pushing into more of a critique of education systems. Again, edutocracies that, you know, Denny talks about or writes about, researches about. And also too, for me, it's situating this conversation and this base of education within these state policies. So I work at the University of Waterloo it's really understanding okay well we have these education systems, we have these post-secondary institutions, but how do they continue to exclude and privilege certain groups of people and privilege and exclude others? And why? because on the surface we talk about international students, we talk about this focus da da da. da. We walk around university campuses, we see a lot of difference, a lot of different faces. But are we truly having a class-based analysis of who's there and why? Are we tying these links to anti-Black racism, to how we get permanent residency in Canada? So that's really where my work is going, but also my work in sport. I love sport, drawing those connections. We can't disaggregate sport from education during the 19th century. Sport basically was a tool to colonize as well. So really getting into that space. And, you know, for me, it's really taking my research in the history and applying it in real world situations and really having people understand. I know we know the term use the term knowledge mobilization to really get people to take or for me to take my work and take my research from the ivory tower and put it into, you know, actionable spaces that my work can live outside of a book or an article. And hopefully someone down the road will pick it up and say,
0: Hey, I learned something and this changed my life a little bit. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you for this. Thank you. Wonderful and it. excellent book. And thank you for all the erudition and eloquence that you shared, that you presented in our dialogue today. I'm tremendously thank thankful. The opportunity. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I am your host on the new books network, Ari Barbalat, I am delighted to have been in conversation today with Dr. Christopher Stewart Taylor. He is assistant professor in the department of history at the university of Waterloo and associate vice president of equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism also at the university of Waterloo. We have been discussing his new book, flying fish in the great white North, the autonomous migration of black Barbadians published by Fernwood Publishing 2016. Thank you wholeheartedly.
1: Thank you. I appreciate this, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you.